the Inquisitor podcast with Marcus Kalki. Today, I have Gavin Ingham, who is a TEDx speaker. He's the founder of I Am 10 and a motivational speaker. Gavin, would you mind giving us a quick two-minute intro into who you are and your journey to where you are today? It's great to be here, Marcus, firstly. I'm uh, pleased to be sharing some stuff and chatting with you. So I've been a speaker now for 20 years. I moved out of corporate in 2001. And since then, my passion has been looking at what is the difference that makes the difference? Why does one person succeed fantastically when another person who would seemingly have all of the skills and the CV to go with it just doesn't succeed in the same way? And from that stemmed my I am 10, and we'll talk more about that later, my I am 10 philosophy on how to achieve success. And as a business, what I do is I work with organizations, helping them to build high-performance teams, particularly sales teams. And I have a, a mental toughness program that's six weeks long that makes an impact straight away for businesses and means more productivity, more motivation, and more sales. Excellent. Gavin, I'm going to start out with a contentious question. So you know my views on this already because we've spoken several times. How can you motivate anyone? Motivation is an internal force. Totally agreed. Motivation is an internal force. So I think when you talk about, you say, what I do is I, I motivate people. You're saying that because that's what people want to hear. Of course, you're exactly right. That's not what you do. What you're doing is you're looking to help people find their own motivation. You're looking to help people to really find what drives them. You're looking to get people to think about what they're doing so that's in alignment with where they want to go. And then you're helping companies to put the leadership and management in that encourages that. Clearly, you can't motivate anybody. I think sometimes people come into a a 45-minute session at a keynote and they'll walk out and they'll say, yeah, I'm motivated. And I think they are. But it's because somewhere in that 45 minutes, you asked the right question or you told the right story or you stirred the right pot inside them to make them realize their own motivation. Gavin, let's talk for a moment about the importance of finding intrinsic motivation and empowering people to feel like they have control over their own destiny and their own outcomes. What is it that is lacking in sales leadership? that causes them to think that salespeople will find their motivation without their help? Well, that's a a great question, Marcus. And I don't actually think there is one thing that causes that problem. I think a lot of it is that sales leaders typically get promoted from being great salespeople. Um, We we love that, don't we? I mean, we, we love to criticize people who are coaching or criticize people who are managing or criticize people who are leading because they weren't the best at what they did. It's it's there in our language. We have a whole language. You know, if somebody stands up and says something, oh, I, I do this and I help people do that, people say, oh, yeah, those who can't do, teach. And so we kind of have this view that people who are great at something are going to make great teachers. And of course, as you know and I know, that is often not the case at all. Great leaders, great teachers, great coaches, great sales leaders, they often have a very, very different skill set. And that doesn't mean that people who've been successful can't learn to be great leaders. But the problem is that a lot of the time we're not taught. A bit like everything in sales, often it's sink or swim. You're just 
thrown into your sales job and you succeed or you don't. I mean, I, I work with quite a few companies over the years who only train people after they've succeeded because they don't want to waste the money beforehand because they know that their turnover rate at the start is going to be poor. And then likewise, people move into their leadership roles and there's this, this assumption that they're going to be able to help other people. And I think a lot of the time, leaders just don't know where to focus their energy. They don't know what questions to ask. They don't know what people should be focusing on. And a lot of what drives them in their management is away from it. It's not towards. They've not thought what they want. They're thinking what they don't want. And that drives them on a a day-to-day basis. So if you ask me what the one consistent thing I think people need is, I think leaders need more training and coaching and more support than virtually anybody else. And the problem, of course, is that often, and I mean, I don't know whether you, I don't know your history right back at the start, but if you started like me, when I first started, I started in sales training and I used to rock up and just deliver a two-day course on this or a three-day course on that. And I would rock up and deliver this course that somebody had told me to deliver. And oftentimes, all of the salespeople would turn up, but the two or three people who wouldn't turn up would be the leader of the team because they were too busy. And maybe the top performer because he didn't need it or she didn't need it. And I would argue that those people are the people who absolutely need to be there because they need to understand how to drive things forward and how to move. And they're the people who don't have the skills. Gavin, you're preaching to the choir here. In my experience, the most undertrained people in virtually every organization are sales managers. So you promote reasonably good salesperson into a position of management and you lose a good salesperson and gain an atrocious manager. And typically what they do is what was done to them. So their idea of coaching is they tell people what to do, which is the antithesis of coaching. They spend their time directing people, which is the opposite of helping people find their intrinsic motivation. So they're very directed. They're micromanaging. They're controlling. And that then creates frustration because the salespeople think, well, if I do something, it's only going to get done for me anyway. So why bother? And the other side is that salespeople say, well, I'll do the minimum necessary in order to not get it in the neck. And so it defeats the two fundamentals of needing to be intrinsically motivated and finding their purpose and their reason for wanting to do it and their ability to do it within their own control. So this then raises the next question in the recruitment process. Why is it that so few managers spend their time trying to understand the individual's personal motivation. And then in the onboarding and development phase, using that in order to be able to remind them why they're doing it so that they can tie their personal goals to their corporate goals. Why is it that that doesn't happen? I have no idea. Um, (laughs) I, I I could see where you were going with that question as you asked it. And I thought, I don't know, but you're exactly right. That is what happens. I believe that People, when they're trying to get somebody into a job, it's a little bit like the first date, isn't it? They want to ask them the questions to find out about them. They want to see if there's a connection. They actually care about that person. They care about what drives them. It's all important, isn't it? And then when you get them into the organization, it's probably because it's more about getting them into the way of thinking of that organization and getting them to do the job and getting work out of them straight away, as opposed to really caring about that individual and what actually drives them. And certainly, when I look at teams that I work with and individuals that I work with and people that I speak to, and you know, much like yourself, it's tens of thousands of people a year, I find that huge amounts of people 
are just going through the motions on a daily basis. You know, and that's not to say, and people sometimes misread what I'm saying there. They think that I'm saying that they're lazy or they think that I'm saying that they don't care. And I'm not saying that at all. These people do care and they're not lazy. And some of them work incredibly hard. I mean, to the extent that they're frazzled, they're working long hours, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they're not completely in touch with who they are and what they want to achieve. They don't think about their own strengths. They're not thinking about why they do what they do. And they're not thinking about how they make a difference. And nobody inside most organizations is actually helping people with that. And I think what that leads to a lot of the time is a lack of clarity. So people don't know what they're supposed to be doing. And then that feeds back down into a complete lack of conviction. So you have sales teams who just have no conviction in what they're doing, no conviction in themselves, no conviction in what they're being asked to do. And then the sales manager or the sales leader comes out, asks them to do more of it. And of course, they just don't have the conviction to do it by that point. So they just come in and they keep living the same old groundhog day over and over and over and over again. The sales manager or the sales leader gets frustrated. They miss target. They start yelling at people to hit targets, start telling them what to do. And the whole process just gets worse and worse and worse. Why don't people do it? I actually suspect because I don't think people understand what needs to be done. I think far too many of the sales training processes and the sales trainers out there are just teaching people what to do from a skills perspective. And nobody is really looking at that mindset piece. Nobody is looking at what's going on underneath. And nobody really cares as long as people make the calls or do whatever they're being asked to do. I think you're pretty much on the money there. We teach behavior, attitude, and technique. Technique is the least important of all. You can teach technique to a chip. Which is what I always liked about Sandler because and was why we had this conversation in the first place. Because whilst I'm not a Sandler trainer, I've read the Sandler stuff, I understand it, we come to the same conclusion. And that is with the right mindset, you'll work out how to do it. But you can have all the skills in the world. If you haven't got the right mindset, you're never going to produce. I think this plays to another really important point. I mean, you talk about mental toughness and so do we. And I think one of the most important attributes of any great salesperson is their resilience, their ability to bounce back. And the only way that salespeople do that is if they have that conviction, that commitment, if they understand why they're doing it, who they're doing it for. And it's invariably not money. Money is simply a benchmark against which people measure how much other people value the work that they're doing. And over a certain amount, You really don't need a lot. I mean, I'm talking to a prospect at the moment. Their top salespeople generate a billion dollars a year in sales. These guys are making multiple millions in bonuses every year. And they really don't need the money. But what they really love is being top of the leaderboard. They love being able to have a massive impact. And what I'm curious about is how does mental toughness in the recruitment process translate to high performance once they're on payroll? Mental toughness is something that if somebody, if you can recruit people who've got it, they're going to have a clearer view of what they want. They're going to have a strong belief in themselves and their own ability to be able to actually bring the resources to bear to get the results. Because of that conviction, if you like, they then have a much clearer view of what they want. I call that clarity. So they know what they want and they set goals around that. They know how they can make a difference. And I think more importantly, they know what to do to make a difference. 
from that, obviously, then what you need is consistency. So you need to get people doing that stuff, consistency. And I think without those three, conviction, clarity, and consistency, it won't make any difference. So mental toughness is in its entirety. It's having the conviction, having the clarity, and having the consistency. And those three loop around. So if you can find somebody who's got all of those three, then they are going to come into the, the business. They're going to work out what they want. They're going to work out what they need to do. And then they're going to work towards doing it, irrespective of what's going on. The problem, of course, is that if the rest of your team don't have mental toughness, if the rest of your team are all over the place, if your management and your leadership is all over the place, and you start to impact any one of those three, whether it's conviction, clarity, or consistency, the rest will just fall down on the floor anyway, because you need all of them in play. You know, Think about it this way. You can have absolute conviction in yourself, but if you're not doing the right things, at some point, your mind is going to say to you, this is just kind of X factor madness. On the other hand, you can have conviction and clarity, i.e. you can know what you need to do, but if you're not doing it, your brain at some point, somewhere is going to whisper to you in the middle of the night, you're not actually doing it, are you? At which point you start to lose that conviction. So I think if you recruit the right people, get the right people on the bus, it makes a massive difference. But if you don't have the programs in play, then it's going to fall down anyway. You will be well aware of, and I, I used to teach it 20 years ago, I don't talk about it anymore, but you know the old in, unconscious incompetence, unconscious competence, all that kind of nonsense. Well, not nonsense, great stuff. But you get to the top point, and the top point, of course, is unconscious competence, which is where you do what you should be doing without even thinking about it. The problem is, the first place was unconscious incompetence. You're doing what you do, but you don't realize why it doesn't work. And people always used to teach that as four steps. And I used to say to people, well, okay, that's great. When you get to the top, what is the link between unconscious competence and unconscious incompetence at the bottom? And there'd be a bit of silence, and then somebody would eventually say, you're unconscious. And I would say, exactly. You're unaware of what's going on. And I don't think it's good enough to just get the right people on the bus or good enough to get people into that conviction, clarity, consistency. You've then got to go into the next stage, which, which I would call, I guess, mastery. And that's where you're constantly trying to improve. Because if you aren't encouraging people to constantly improve, then at some point or other, they will slip back. Those unconsciously competent habits, whether that's around mindset or around techniques or skills or habits, will drift back towards unconscious incompetence. And you'll have this team that, or this individual that was great, but all of a sudden they're not so much. And that's where I think people get lazy, you know? So I think getting the right people on is important, but I think having the right processes when they get in, having the right leadership in particular and the right management when they get in is absolutely critical. I agree. And in fact, you kind of took the words out of my mouth, but from a slightly different perspective, which is I think that in order to be mentally tough, you also need to have the courage to be vulnerable, to recognize that you don't know it all and that you're not the finished article. Even if you're playing at the top of your game, there's always room for improvement. And what I see happen time and time again is good people then stagnate because what made them successful in the past doesn't really cut it for the current environment. And they're afraid of showing that vulnerability. So again, one of the qualities that we look for when we're helping our clients to recruit is that vulnerability, uh, because I think it's certainly a sign of mental toughness that you can actually take criticism, you can volunteer and ask for help, and it's not a personality defect. Before you move on, I always think in, in sales, I mean, in other roles as well, but particularly in sales and 
sales leadership and sales management, I think there is a real double-edged sword here because perhaps more than almost any other job, you meet with rejection. So you need that self-belief. You need that almost sort of rubber skin, or even if you've not got that rubber skin, you need that ability to get back up again. You need to be able to believe in yourself, no matter how many times someone else says no to you. Uh, in, in my Be More, Do More, Sell More book, I pose uh, a very simple question to people about having a new product and going out in the market, and you go out in the market with your new product to a new market, and everybody in the market says to you, that's too expensive. After you've seen 25, 30 people who've all said that's too expensive, what do you do? And I posed a sort of an A, B, C, D situation to people. And of course, the interesting thing is that most people at that point would go back to their manager and say, hey, look, nobody wants this, or hey, look, this is too expensive. And yet when you look into history, there are dozens and dozens and hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of examples from the mundane right the way up to the household name like Kentucky Chicken, where somebody took an idea out to the market and was refused literally hundreds of times before somebody said yes. And that's having that personal conviction and having that personal belief, irrespective of what other people say to you. The problem is that that sits almost on the opposite side of the coin to where you need to be in regard to your own growth. Because I think often what happens is people go, I'm awesome, I'm brilliant, I don't need to worry about my clients saying no. But then that loops over into, and therefore I know everything. And the problem is, you're quite right, what you need on the other side of the coin is the vulnerability to say, but I could still be better, and I still have weaknesses. And I think for many people, they find it difficult to carry both of those at the same time. I don't know whether you've experienced that too. Absolutely, and that's what precisely why we teach the difference between identity and role. Identity is who you are. Role is what you do. And the problem that we see is where people are too invested in the role function rather than understanding that role failure is not a personality defect. It's just a fact of life. It's universal. It's unavoidable. It's part of the human condition. And being resilient requires people to be able to separate their identity from their role and to recognize that a bad day at work doesn't make Gavin a bad human being. A bad cold call or a bad sales call doesn't make Gavin a bad human being. So one of the key things that we teach our clients to do is that they need to do a written pre-call plan. They need to rehearse for three hours for every hour they're in front of the prospect. This is typically for medium to big ticket sales, because when you take into account how much time, money, and resources gone in to get you that lead, I think it's an act of gross misconduct for salespeople to go in and wing it because they're unprepared. And then when they come out to do a written and verbal post-call debrief in order to capture the lessons, in order to be able to identify what they could have done differently, any questions that remain unanswered, and then to feed their next pre-call plan for the next step. And so your point is absolutely on the money. But what you tend to find is that salespeople will get into a rut. And my favorite definition of a rut is a coffin with both ends kicked out. What they do is they keep doing what they've always done. And then they're surprised when they're not getting what they've always got because the market or the economy or the environment has changed. And I think the best salespeople are constantly asking themselves, well, what could I have done better? They never come out of a sales call satisfied. And as a result of that, they're constantly learning. I don't know about you, but I spend an average of between two and six hours a day on developing myself. And 
I spend hours listening to audiobooks. I watch podcasts and videos. Where am I going to fit in all the time to do work? Well, actually, funnily enough, I perform at the top of my game every year. And every year, I do better than I did the last year. So it doesn't seem to get in the way. I think I have the advantage of being self-employed. And your point being that people will train people only after they've succeeded. Well, that's myopic. Because if they're doing that, then why have they spent all that money recruiting, onboarding, and developing and training their people in product? And then they don't tell them or train them how to sell it. That always baffles me. I mean, have you seen that in your work? One of the best conversations I ever had, uh, or the worst, depending on how you look at it, or the funniest, I don't know, was a conversation with uh, an international sales director who had uh, quite a large team of about 450 salespeople. And I met him at a conference where I was speaking. And he came up to me at the end of the conference and he said it was a great talk and he'd enjoyed it. And he was interested in talking to me uh, about what I could do for his teams. And I said, well, I specialize in mental toughness for sales, helping people build high-performance teams that, that make more sales. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, getting them in the right mindset, uh, getting them to be more productive and giving them the consistency they need to do that on a daily basis. And he said, so you're talking about motivation. And I said, well, I wouldn't have quite put it like that. But yeah, if you want to put it in the motivation bag, that's fine. And he pulled a face and he looked at me and he said, to be honest, if my people weren't motivated, I'd just sack them. And I thought, well, that just sums it up, doesn't he? He's just not got the the want to actually look at this stuff at all. I'm often baffled. I mean, I always say that our five biggest competitors are fear, apathy, ignorance, ego, and denial. And ignorance you can cope with. Ignorance is really a matter of they don't know. Apathy, that's probably you need to replace those people because they just don't have that motivation and you're going to be pushing rope uphill. Unless you can find that motivation, don't waste your energy. Fear is paralyzing. And more often than not, that's fed by ignorance because they don't know what they don't know. And so what they do is they do what they've always done. They, sit, they get those 25 rejections and they're not asking themselves better questions. And as a result, they don't make progress. Denial is a big one where you contact somebody and they say, oh, well, we're 100% on that. We're fully taken care of. But you can see from their results, they've been flatlining or they've been doing a bit of a roller coaster up and down. And they really aren't in control. And then the worst of all is ego. And ego is definitely the enemy. I don't know if you've read Ryan Holiday's book, Ego is the Enemy. Fabulous read if you have. It's where we get in our own way. We have this narrative that tells us that we are the be all and end all and that we don't need help. And actually, it's those people who tend to be very brittle that say that, rather than the ones who can bend and flex with the wind. It's the ones who are very brittle and they're afraid of being found out. There's this I'm not worthy script, the imposter script. Again, I don't know if you've seen that in the course of your work. Yes, I have a lot. People run all sorts of scripts, don't they? And I think a lot of those scripts are doing them no favors at all. And I think what happens is people run this sort of global script across everything. And they don't realize that a script that's working in one area of their life just won't work in another area of their life. Tell me this. You've got this mental toughness program. Talk us through an overview of the different processes and steps that you take people through so that people get an understanding of the kind of work that you do and how you might be able to help them. Sure. Well, I mean, of course, it depends where people come into the program and what's driving them. 
because generally speaking, I find that you've got people at sort of four different levels, those who are almost beyond help, as in they've probably been denying that they need any help. They're still denying it and they'll blame anything other than themselves. And that comes down to that it's not that you can't help the people, it's whether you can persuade the owner to get on board. Then you've got people who are quite inconsistent. So they get results occasionally, but most of the time they're inconsistent. Again, they usually blame the market and stuff like that. Then you've got the third level, and the third level, uh, second and third levels are probably the two biggest ones where people engage. And the third level is where people are doing quite well, but it's just not consistent enough. And the conversation you have usually comes from a client saying, well, they are getting the results sometimes, but I've got some people who aren't and some people, and they're too easily distracted. And we've got the sales roller coaster going on. And then you've got the fourth level where people are performing and performing well. So what I do is I, I work with them firstly to build conviction because as we've talked about already, without that conviction, that belief in themselves, that belief in the business, that belief in what they do and how they do it, that belief that they personally can do it, that they as a team can do it, that their business is the right business to work with. Without that conviction, everything else falls down as we've already discussed. The second element I work on with people is clarity. I think a lot of the time, People assume that salespeople know what to do. I don't know about you, but I find more than any other role, people seem to take this sink or swim approach with salespeople. Even when they do training, it's bitty, it's not consistent, or they get a lot at the start and then they never get any more. There's this, just this assumption that I don't know why it is, but they'll know what to do. I use a non-sales example often. I, I have this friend, and we'll go for a, a coffee once every now and then during the day, he doesn't work and uh, I'll meet him when I'm working from home occasionally and we'll have a coffee. And it's quite funny because we'll be sitting there and we'll be having a coffee or a cappuccino and a, a whatever. And one of the waiters or waitresses will come across and they'll take your order for your seconds or whatever. And they'll walk back and they'll walk back without the empty cups. And he has a complete and utter fit every time and says, why didn't they take the cups? It's obvious. And I said, it's obvious to you because you've maybe worked in a cafe or a restaurant. It's obvious to you because maybe your parents made you tidy up the table. It's obvious to you for a whole variety of reasons, but maybe it's not obvious to them. We're talking about maybe an 18, 19, 20-year-old person here. Maybe they've been spoiled. Maybe they've never cleaned a table. Maybe they've never been told how to clean a table or maybe they've just not thought about it. And I think when you look at sales organizations, you see a lot of people doing a lot of things that they think are inverted commas work. You see a lot of people copying what other people do in their organization, but they don't have clarity. They don't have clarity about what they should be doing, what they should be doing that will really make a difference. What are the things that if they did them consistently, they would bring them results. And they need the clarity to know exactly what they are, coupled with the conviction that if they do them, it doesn't matter that they're doing not doing the 80% tasks that everybody else is doing. Once you've got conviction and clarity in play, what I look to do is help people to bring consistency. And consistency, simply put, is just getting people to do something over and over and over. I think what happens a lot of the time is we try and do stuff with willpower. And as you and I both know, willpower is effectively a muscle. It runs out. If anybody listening has got children, you will have experienced this. You'll have this child that when they get home from school, you know, they're a bit naughty. Uh, they won't do as what they're told. They're moaning. And you go to their teachers and their teachers say, oh, they're the best behaved child in the world. 
And you're like, what? Who, ha, what? And, and the bottom line is that the child is using their willpower all day to behave. And when they come home, they're like, oh, that's it. I'm done. And the willpower's gone. Their emotions outweigh their willpower. You see this with food. You know, there's a reason why I don't have, say, chocolate biscuits in the house. And the answer is that I can sit here for nine hours of the day going, don't eat that chocolate biscuit, don't eat that chocolate biscuit. And my willpower is more than strong enough. But at seven o'clock, eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night, maybe 10 o'clock after the kids have gone to bed and I'm tired, all of a sudden, my emotion, my want to eat that biscuit outweighs my willpower. And it's not that the willpower isn't strong, it's just that willpower is a muscle and it's worn out. So what we need to do once we have the conviction and clarity is help people build that consistency. And that means building in routines which use your willpower to build daily habits, habits which produce success. And when you look at the most successful people, the most successful teams, they're the one with habits that build success. So what I do is a combination of keynotes, online delivery and coaching to help people drive this. And in its initial instance, I have a six-week program that gets people thinking doing and moving the right way. Um, and then from there, I either leave people with advice as to what to do and pass the mojo over, or I carry on and work with the leadership teams in more detail. This is really interesting. I mean, there are a couple of things that I'd like to pick up on. First of all, the research is very clear on this. There is a myth that you can create a habit in 21 days. That's not the case at all. It's 66 days is the earliest you're likely to create a habit. So a six-week program as an absolute minimum makes good sense. Then we have, on top of that, this other thing that you mentioned, which is the kids have spent their lives at school trying to behave and conform. And I think the problem starts in schools. I think the problem is that our school system is designed specifically uh, to create compliant children rather than children who behave like their natural child, which is autonomous, self-directed, and curious. I don't know of a child who isn't curious about its world, the world it inhabits, and how it works, until parents and teachers had drummed that out of them and uh, taught them to colour in between the lines. And I think that follows through into adolescence and adulthood, because increasingly, the people who are on the coalface, who are closest to the problem, are the ones who are typically the most controlled And actually, they're the ones who need the autonomy. So increasingly, what I see, and this ties right back to the stuff we were talking about at the beginning, about intrinsic motivation and autonomy, is that the people who are doing the job need to be the ones making the decisions. They need to be the ones designing the systems and the processes. They are the ones who need to be listened to and to be heard. But increasingly, what I see is the exact opposite. And I'm curious in terms of how you're teaching your clients to get their salespeople thinking for themselves, making decisions for themselves. And instead of hitting a roadblock and saying, oh, that's the way it is, then asking themselves better questions to get round those problems. Well, exactly that way, in fact. So getting people to... Starting off really with the rewiring. So in the conviction piece, the first thing I do is I look at helping people build their inner power. So understanding that they do have the strengths, understanding that they do have 
the abilities, getting them to think about times when they have succeeded and why they succeeded and what they brought to that situation that allowed them to succeed. People have to believe in themselves. If you want to have change, I mean, I don't know if you've ever read any of the conversational change stuff, very, very interesting, but that they use with drug addicts and things like that. And one of the most interesting pieces is that you've got to believe that you have the resources to be able to change. And I think exactly as you say, a lot of people in trying to prepare them for inverted commas work, in trying to get them to sit quietly. I mean, it's interesting, my son actually we and I understand, you know, you have to do it. But I remember when he first went to uh, to, to, to nursery because none of our kids, uh, we did we didn't put them in. Um, my, my wife uh, looks after the children, so you know they didn't go to school until till nursery, and we took the, the the fifteen hours, and they went and had their fifteen hours, you know, half a day for five days of the week. And for the first term, it was all about, and all the feedback was about. And he is now doing well sitting on the mat quietly. And he understands when he needs to sit on the mat and when he can talk and when he can't and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I understand why that is important, but you're quite right. It's getting people to behave so that they can almost feed in what they want them to know. And what I want people to do is realize that they have the strength, they have the power. So it's getting them to realize that they can drive it forward. Yes, you know, their company might be great and their support might be great. But as you said, motivation is always intrinsic. So whilst, you know, this is a high performance sales team program, whilst I help people build mental toughness for sales and it's a system for everybody and there's management stuff and leadership stuff in there, the reality is you have to reach the individuals. The reality is the individual has to know. The second piece then is getting them to think about what drives them, what motivates them, why they get up in the morning, why they stay up late up at night. And I think, again, maybe through the school system or by the end of the school system, or maybe after they've come into work, at some point, most people just forget that. They forget what it is that's driving them and why. And again, that's getting them to think about themselves and what they want, getting them to take responsibility. It's not about the target that someone else gave you. It's about where do you want to be? Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? You know, what do you want to achieve? How much do you want to earn? What do you want to do with your spare time? So thinking about those things, uh, and then there's other stuff, but those two sit as two of the building blocks inside conviction, getting people to really think about themselves. So I do it by driving it back to those people and giving them the ability to think about themselves that maybe they've not had for some time. Excellent. One of the other things that we do is we create a cookbook, which is a behavioral recipe book, working backwards from the end game whatever the end result is that they're trying to achieve, and then working out what are the behaviors that they need to implement consistently and repeatedly. Because like you said, habits build success. You know, Aristotle is attributed with the quote, although I think um, it's been misattributed, but success is a habit. It's not something that comes through uh, luck because what you're doing is doing the right behaviors consistently over time and meaning it. Now, by putting in place a cookbook, you can measure and track and be able to see in ad- well in advance if there's a problem coming. And so very often what we see in sales teams is that there, there isn't that structure because people in management are afraid of coming across as being micromanaging and controlling. But it's not. The cookbook is personal. The cookbook is devised and developed by the salesperson in order to hit their personal goals and objectives. And when it's developed that way, instead of being imposed on them, 
as a, a playbook, then they tend to achieve their goals and objectives. And as a result of that, they're more satisfied and they're constantly stretching themselves. So every 90 days, the cookbook may be modified and they work towards their next set of goals and objectives. Totally agreed. I've had that experience so many times with teams where somebody and individuals where somebody has said, before I go in, well, you know, you can't tell them what to do. If you tell them what to do, if you micromanage them, if you give them a schedule or a routine or anything like that, they'll reject it. But when you start with them, when you start with what's important to them, when you get them thinking about what they want, when you get them thinking about what they need to do, they often come back at the end and say, well, really, why have we not got schedules? Well, really, why, why are we not working? Well, really, why? And what they give you is often actually more broken down and more in detail than had been rejected when it was given to them in the past. But of course, the reality is that people like to make their own minds up about things, don't they? People like to come to things for themselves and they like to feel that they're taking them in the direction of where they want to go. And I think with me, that's the whole point. It's about having that conviction, having that clarity, and then having that consistency. And without the three pulling together, it doesn't work. I call what you're talking about, I have it in two boxes, actually. One's in clarity, which I call move the dial, which is what do you need to do that really makes a difference? And then in consistency, daily routine, what is the routine that you need to take? And again, you need people to come to that of their own decision, what that daily routine is. But, you know, you said uh, very similar to me, I probably don't spend six hours a day, but probably an hour to two hours a day on personal development of one sort or another. I, I suppose sometimes more, but probably around two hours most days. And one of the interesting things is that there are certain themes on the which come through over and over and over and over again in all of the personal development people, in all of the successful salespeople, in all of the bios. And indeed, when you just look at successful people, so you can just look at various people and you can see how they spend their time on activities that move the dial, the ones, as you said, that really make a difference and how they've built those into their daily routines. The vast majority of successful people take some time out for themselves at the start of the day, which is all about inner power and personal drive and reminding yourself why you're doing what you're doing. They spend some time on fitness because it, it gives them the energy to keep those daily routines going and keep those habits going and drive through to the end. They spend some time being grateful. They spend some time thinking about what they need to do today before they even do it because it gets them visualizing it and visualizing success. Then they break their day. They do the most important things that drive them where they want to go first. And a lot of the stuff, when you look around the sales team, what they're doing at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock in the morning, it's just not that important. One of the other things I've found, and again, you need people to come to this for themselves, but is that when you do the important things first, yeah. then you feel better about yourself, which allows you to have more conviction. And you and I, and we are lucky because we work for ourselves, but you and I both have concluded that one of the most important things you can do is invest in yourself. And therefore, we make sure that that happens on a daily basis. Couldn't agree more. What I am fascinated by is how a good salesperson can be turned average very quick because of the culture, the lack of an onboarding process, the lack of coaching. And I'm curious if you have any stories to tell where you've seen that happen and what the impact was on the organization. <laughs> Sorry, there's one springs to mind, but I'm not going to share it because they're a bit of a fan and they'll come and listen to this and they'll know it's them. So, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, but but yeah, no, there are dozens of examples because it, it's something that happens a lot, isn't it? And I, I don't know whether you've had the same experience as me, but it often happens where somebody recognizes that their sales team's a little bit sleepy or they're not doing the right things and they decide to be a bit more and they'll throw a word at it, proactive or they decide to bring in some hunters or whatever. And, and they'll go out and they'll find somebody who's a really good performer and then they drop them in. And it's almost like dropping an ice cube into a bucket of boiling water. It just goes. And, it, and it's amusing because you'll speak to the person beforehand. And this one example I'm thinking of, and I'm just going to be careful how I share this, but the one example I'm thinking of, I was, I was around actually at the time of interview because I was pitching for the business. And, <laughs> and so I got to speak to this person because they were there on the same day as me. And I spoke to them as they came out from their interview and they said, oh, it's ridiculous. I've never seen anything like it. They're lazy. They're sleepy. They're not proactive enough. They're not doing the right things. Nobody's going after new business. Everybody's discounting. I am going to absolutely smash this for six. Anyway, it took me a bit of time to close the uh, client off. And I went back about three months later, which was the first time I went. And... Um, I met this guy again and he'd been hired and I looked at his results and his results weren't all that. So I got to speak to him and it was just clearly obvious from the first moment that I spoke to him that he'd just melted. He'd melted in the pot of everybody else's mediocrity. And I think what happens is that people, a lot of people, they just don't like standing out in that way and they just get dragged down. And he, when I did eventually speak to him, he did just say to me, well, look, I know that what I'm doing doesn't make any sense. And I know I should be doing this and this, but, and he just kind of shrugged. And it was just a wasted hire and a wasted time. Because obviously what you've got to do is you've got to sort out the reasons why you've got a problem in the first place before you can start adding people to make the change. This comes to another key issue, which is you have to fix the problem at its cause. And if senior management doesn't give not only its blessing, but its tacit support, then it's very easy for somebody to slip into the moribund culture. And where someone is more interested in being liked than being effective, where they are people pleasers, where they are afraid of dealing with conflict, where they're approval addicted, those kinds of people, well-intentioned, but what they tend to be is rescuers and they tolerate non-performance. They help without boundaries or permission. They end up creating a culture of learned helplessness where problems get passed up the food chain. They then become a bottleneck as they get run more and more ragged because they're doing more and more work. And they're always complaining. And you see this all the time in middle management. I'm so tired. I'm working such long hours. Well, why? Your job is to get your people to do the work. It's your job to push the decision down the chain of command. It's your job to delegate and it's your job to design the processes and the systems and think about the strategy and then bring people on board. Because I think managers only have two functions in life. Hire the best people and get the best out of them. And too often, managers think their job is to manage. It's, it couldn't be further from the truth. I'm working with a number of teams at the moment. And the ones that are stellar and they're completely outstanding, the managers aren't necessarily, and to pick up on your point earlier, they're not necessarily the best salespeople, but they were made for management. They were made for senior leadership positions. They were, they're hardwired for it. 
And they constantly coach and develop their people. Every day, they're coaching their people. One of the things I hear time and time again is managers saying, I don't have time to coach. Well, of course you damn well don't. You're not coaching. It's just a vicious circle. And so they're not getting the best out of their people. So they're having to make up the gaps. And they're donning their slightly rusted and tarnished armor at the end of every month or quarter trying to bring deals in over the line, which is why they're paying the people in the first place to do the job of sales. So I'm curious here, when you're talking about mental toughness in leadership, what are the qualities of a mentally tough leader? Well, I think they're very similar to that of a mentally tough anybody. And I think to come back to that, I've got to probably talk about what I mean by mental toughness. So what I mean by mental toughness is Knowing who you are, knowing what you want, knowing where you're going, knowing what you need to do, and then having the strength to be able to do it, irrespective of the challenges that you meet. So as a manager, I think one of the biggest problems is, as we said right back at the start, that people walk into this management role because they were good at selling. And you just described this systems-based person, and it's not for managing what have you. And oftentimes, that person is not the person who was successful at sales because a lot of salespeople are successful for the wrong reasons. So you can get somebody who's a a really great communicator, who is influential, who can switch it on and be what I would call a 10 in the important moments and be quite successful. If they were put in the wrong market at the wrong time or they made a downturn, they wouldn't be successful because they don't actually have a process for what they do. They don't actually have a system for what they do. They're just really good at switching it on when it matters. Sometimes, in fact, they're quite a negative deterrent on the rest of the team as well. So they're not actually sometimes what you're losing on the rest of the team for this particular individual. It's just not worth it. But anyway, this individual becomes a manager and they have no idea how to manage, no idea how to lead. The only thing is they know how they were successful and they know what their manager did. So they try and copy it. So I think one of the most important things about the manager comes back to, if they don't have it naturally, comes back to what you talked about earlier, and that was humility. They need to have the humility to actually sit in front of someone like yourself or me and work through the stuff on an individual level. So they've got to know what does a great leader look like? What does a great leader look like in our organization? Where do I want to go? What should I be doing or where should I be spending my time? Because if we took you, I know you don't lead people as such, but you lead a business and you lead people through what you do and you have a massive impact. And Marcus, that is because you know what you want. It's because you know what makes a difference and because you have the strength, the mental strength, the mental toughness to actually do that on a daily basis. There must be many, many days when there's things you could do that would distract from you spending that time on developing yourself. But you've made that decision that's important and you have the mental toughness to stick to that. Most managers just don't have that. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what they want. They don't know what's important to them. They don't know how to make a difference. And then therefore they can't stick to it. And they just get dragged all over the place. I remember one of the first, and I don't run any courses titled sales manager these days. But I remember once a long, long time ago running an open sales management course. And it was two days long. And I had 20 people or 21 people booked on this course. And it was in a venue in London. And the notes went out and everything. And it said, you know, arrive at nine for coffee and a biscuit and a chat. We'll start at 9.30. So nine o'clock comes and goes, nobody. 
9.10, nobody. 9.15, nobody. 9.20, nobody. 9.25, the first manager turns up. 9.27, 9.28, three or four more others turn up. At 9.30, we haven't even got half of the delegates. By 9.45, I'm two adrift, so I eventually start. And, and the same pattern repeats itself at lunchtime where they're given an hour and nobody's back after an hour. And I realized right then, not that they were bad people, not that they didn't want to be there, not anything else, but they didn't know or they didn't perceive that what they were doing is important. They'd been sent, but they didn't believe that developing themselves, they didn't believe that learning to be a better manager was that important. And when I did speak to them, and I didn't speak to all of them, but I said, you know, why were you late? And what happened at lunchtime and whatnot. And you can imagine what the answer is. Well, well, you know, I had this really important call to take. And well, I had to speak to this person. Well, I had to do that. And just other stuff that was just not a priority at all had prioritized itself because they'd never taken the time to actually think about what was really important to them. And obviously, uh, again, as you said, people say they haven't got time to coach because they've never seen the results from coaching and they don't really know what coaching is. So it becomes this sort of chicken and egg thing. And so a great manager, I find, is somebody's got the humility to admit that they actually have got stuff to learn and then they're prepared to sit there and work out what they want, what they need to do and how they're going to do it and then invest the time in actually doing that. Absolutely. This then comes to another thing that I've got real beer in my bonnet about, (laughs) which is your rights as a salesperson, your rights as a manager. When I ask people, what are your rights as a salesperson? The normal reaction is silence. Then the jaw drops a little and they go, huh? And that fascinates me. Having come from being one of those people, because when the the idea of a salesperson's bill of rights was mooted with me, I had exactly the same reaction. I thought, well, the customer is king, the buyer is always right, the man with the gold makes the rules. Bluntly, that's a crock that was developed by buyers in order to control salespeople. And so... I'm fascinated. I think it's probably worthwhile investigating a little bit further. What are a manager's rights? Well, that is the first time anybody has ever used that language with me. So bear with me while I think about it. What are you, what are you driving towards? What are you, when you say rights, what are you thinking? Well, I believe that a salesperson has the right to do their job. They have the right to make calls. They have the right to speak to decision makers. They have the right to work their way past gatekeepers. They have the right to get paid what they're worth for the value that they deliver. Now, what's the manager's equivalent of this? Well, a manager's right then, in that case, is to do the job that they want to do to get where they want to go, to be able to hire the people they want onto their teams and to be able to manage them and coach them in the way that they think is most effective, not the way that some HR department or whatever does that. Obviously, understanding that they know what they're doing, that is, clearly, not if they're an idiot. They need to have the right to be able to develop themselves and improve themselves. They need to have the right to be able to add value to the sales process and add value to the individuals that are working with them. It's an interesting one because I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan, as you can probably tell, of the word right. I do think everybody has rights, but I usually think most rights usually require someone else to give something. So it's a word that I'm not particularly comfortable with sometimes, but I understand where you're digging at. And I think a lot of managers do spend a lot of time running around, pleasing people above them and doing things that they feel they ought to do, but probably aren't the right results. I, do you know what? I think the biggest right that managers should probably be able to have is to be able to sit back 
and think about what they really want and where they really want to go and then invest some time in understanding what would actually help them get there and then have the right to be able to do it. I think another really important right is the right to fail. I remember when I was working with one company, we recruited a marketing director for them. And I knew the alarm bell should have been going when the CEO said to the marketing director, look, yeah, we're all in favor of you experimenting, but we'd rather you didn't experiment on the things that didn't work. And I know it was tongue in cheek, but that's actually what happened in the end, because they made his life an absolute misery for testing. And in marketing, as in sales, you've got to find out what works and what doesn't. And he was punished for it. And this is another really important area that I think we need to build into every sales culture, which is failure is universal. It's unavoidable. And the sooner you allow people to fail without punishing them for it, as long as they're not making the same mistake repeatedly, then they take risks. But if you punish people, you stifle entrepreneurship, you stifle creativity, you stifle risk-taking. And I think it's an imperative that leadership recognizes that failure is part of selling and that salespeople need to be allowed to fail. But the culture is one where if you do fail, you capture the lessons. You work out how you're going to behave differently the next time. Because I think failure is your best teacher. I mean, when was the last time you learned anything meaningful, substantive from one of your victories compared with a damn good drubbing? Well, totally, totally agreed. I mean, I, I, think, I think you can learn masses from victories. And I think, as I demonstrate... When uh, have you? <laughs> well, no, yeah, no, that's my point. Well, I do, because I ask myself the questions. But, you know, I've got, I've got it there as point one under conviction in the power. And one of the big things is asking yourself the right questions about the successes that you've had. But the whole point that that's there is because nobody, it's because nobody does that. And when people do that, you know, I got four questions that I share. I and mean, there's a lot more in the actual program, but there's four on an infographic. And when I share those, people just go, wow, that makes a difference. And, and the reason is because people don't ask that kind of question. So the answer is, for most people, never. It is an interesting one, though, isn't it? I think a lot of salespeople just do not learn whatever the situation. They neither learn from their successes nor do they learn from their failures. And I think managers and leaders often are exactly the same because they're too busy looking at why it failed and what happened and who's to blame that they never actually get the results. I think, and I think one of the biggest problems with leaders as well is that they are scared to try new stuff. You're quite right because they're scared to fail. And markets are changing so fast and individuals and the way they're motivated are changing so fast. You know, when I first started doing what I do, I used to ask people some there's a lot of new questions, but I used to ask some similar questions to what I did now. And, and it was just noticeable that the answers that were being given to me were changing. It's not that everybody in sales wanted to earn more money or drive a faster car, but I could stand in a room 20 years ago and say, if I gave you 20 grand, I want to know what car you would buy and why. And if you had a team of 20 to 30-somethings, and there were 20 in the room, 10 to 15 would say an Audi TT, a couple would say an old Porsche, maybe one might say, well, I don't drive, maybe a couple would say, well, you know, a four-wheel drive or, a, you know, a, a station wagon because I've got kids or something. If you ask the same question now, you would get an entirely different set of answers because 
why the work has changed, what the drive changed, and what motivates change. The the mindset around cars, of course, and petrol and all that sort of stuff has changed. The answers would be entirely different. And I suppose the thing is this: when you look at that unconsciously incompetent, unconsciously competent thing, one of the things that will take you from unconsciously competent to unconsciously incompetent like that is changes in the environment that you haven't noticed. And if you carry on trying to do the same, to try and get the same results, you're going to fail at some point because the market or your clients or the situation is going to change around you. And if you're going to change, you've got to be prepared to embrace failure. If you can't embrace failure, then it's not going to work. And I think you're quite right. A lot of sales managers, they just feel like they've got to keep on doing what they're doing more intensely and whatnot, whereas there might actually be a different way of doing things. You only need to look at how slow people were to pick up uh, social media and blogging and marketing online and sort that sort of stuff. People were really, really slow. And there's a couple of industries that I work with now who are still fighting back using video, for example, where video would be incredibly powerful. You know, the number of people who, who say to me, well, well, let's all meet. And I say, well, why exactly are we meeting? And, and then we conclude we can do it on the phone or we can do it on a webinar or, or whatever. And it's just people doing things the same way because they're scared of failing doing it a different way. And if you're scared of failing, then you're going to fail. So I think one of the things managers need to be given is that ability to try new things and the support of the management that it's okay if they fail. But at that point, that comes back to right at the start of our conversation when I said, I try and loop everybody in. Because I think unless you've got the loop in and of the senior management, they can just kill any kind of change program like that by just going, no, we're going back to the way we were doing it or by castigating people for trying something different and it not working first time. This is really interesting. I mean, there are a couple of things that you've raised. I'm conscious we're coming to the hour now, but I'd like to pick up on a couple of points. Often when you're hiring experienced salespeople, they say they have 20 years' experience. Actually, what they've got is one year's experience 20 times over. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. (laughs) The other point that you made around social media, I, I look at LinkedIn and I am constantly flabbergasted at how atrocious people's profiles are. This is their window to the world. And they don't have a profile picture. They don't have a banner picture that has something relevant and meaningful. Their summary is basically an awful bad CV summary. All of their job functions are all written for as if they're trying to get a job. I don't know about you, but a lot of my business, I mean, we did half a million last year on the back of LinkedIn. And it wasn't really hard. I never have to leave my chair, my office. and. It was pretty straightforward, and it fed the telephone conversations. It fed the public speaking. That's another area that I'm constantly amazed by. But this one piece that I'd like to finish on, sales meetings. In my experience, a sales meeting is generally the whack, the weekly ass-kicking, where the sales manager stands up and grumbles about how terrible everything is. Then the top performer beats their chest, and then everybody else tries to hide and not be noticed. And then they puff up their pipeline reports so that it either looks like Dolly Parton or Kim Kardashian or both. So it's top heavy, full of rubbish, or it's constipated at the bottom and nothing is uh, going to close because they don't know how to. And instead of being a, a sales meeting, being a reporting activity, a sales meeting should be an opportunity for the team to discuss particular topics where they can all learn. They can all advance in their competence and their behavior. But instead, it's this weekly death march 
Why mm. is that? Because it's the way they've always done it, I guess. I, I 100% agree with you. I One of the questions I ask people always is, before, and, and I ask this to myself, I mean, I'm sure you do, before I do a speech, before I walk into a training session, before I do anything, I ask myself the question, what is the purpose of this? You know, why am I actually doing this? It's not that I need to walk through blah, 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 or I need to say blah, blah. What's the purpose? Why are we here? And one of the questions I ask is, what is the purpose of sales meetings? And I let them talk about it. And, and eventually, they usually come out and they go, well, you know, they should be motivational. They should be something that brings everybody together. They should be something that helps my guys learn and develop. It should be something that helps them all move in the same direction and take action and walk out motivated. And I go, how's that working out for you? And, <laughs> and they go, well, it's not. And then you only need to, you know, I don't need to know because as you say, there's no way you can sit in a, I mean, you know, what does nobody like? It's hilarious. Certain things make me laugh, right? And, and one of them is feedback. And you and me, we live on saying that feedback is king. You know, feedback is important. Constructive feedback is king. Constructive feedback is important. So we say things like, give me feedback. I want it. I'll improve from it. I'll use it. And despite saying this for 30 or 40 years, I'm sure that there are certain bits of feedback that can and will and occasion have been given to you. And your initial sort of thought has been, nah. Nine times out of 10, I accept it gratefully and I'm genuinely happy and it doesn't bother me. But every now and then, something just touches a nerve and I think, mm, right, I'm not happy about that. And that's us. That's people who teach it, talk about it, share it. The reality is that most people are out there saying, I love feedback. Feedback's great. Most people hate feedback. They hate it with a passion. It annoys them. It upsets them. It upsets the way they feel. It kicks their ego. It impacts their belief in themselves. They fight it. They disagree with it in their heads. They smile and they don't mean it, and etc. And the problem is that if you stand a group of people in a room and you tell them that they've not hit target or they have hit target in front of other people, really, is there any way that you think telling people what to do or telling them that they've not hit target in front of everybody else is a positive thing? It's just not. Now, if your reason, if your purpose for a weekly meeting is to beat them up and tell them how they've not succeeded, then fill your boots. But otherwise, I'm with you. I think it should be a celebration of success. I think you should be talking about where you're going and what you're trying to achieve, what you're focusing on in general, what you're focusing on that week, what people need to do. But even then, not telling them, getting them to talk about it, getting them to share and help each other and think about how they can drive forward. Some learning lessons in there, not from you, Stuff that they teach each other, you know, little case studies, sharing what's worked that week, what they learned from it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, probably like you, I've got a set structure for how I would go about doing that. But again, I like people to try and design their own because a sales leader running a sales meeting that they and their team design together, that they all understand why they're doing it, they all understand how to do it, and they all understand how they benefit from it, and they all work out feeling great, is a really positive thing. I couldn't agree more. On that note, Gavin, thank you very much. Really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, me too. Excellent. So, Gavin, how can people get hold of you? They can get hold of me on gavinningham.com, which is G-A-V-I-N-I-N-G-H-A-M.com. And if they go to forward slash insights, so that's gavinningham.com forward slash insights, they can download my uh, four killer questions on how to create rockstar mental toughness, insane productivity, and supercharged sales 
uh, and that's for leaders to help them with their teams. Excellent. Gavin Ingham, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Marcus. This is Marcus Kauke from Sander Training on the Inquisitor podcast signing off. If you've enjoyed this interview, then please comment, share, and like it. Make a point of logging into the other podcasts that we've covered. And if you're going to be anyone in sales, I strongly recommend that you come along to the Sander Summit in Orlando. It's in March on the 20th to 22nd of March. And it's a thousand clients, three to 500 Sander franchisees and trainers, all networking, all helping each other, telling each other case studies and having a good time by the pool. So that's Marcus Kauke signing off. Look forward to the next time. Bye-bye.